March is National Craft Month, so we're re-releasing our episode about Surf Plus and emergency relief for artists. Surf Plus has offered three rounds of COVID-19 relief grants, plus they offer many other resources for artists and business. Here's the episode as we recorded it last year. Welcome to Jewelry Artists, where we examine the art and business of making jewelry. Join me for intriguing conversations with jewelry artists who will inform and inspire you. I'm Katie Hacker, your host. My guest today is Carrie Cleveland. She's the Education and Outreach Manager for Surf Plus, which is an artist safety net. So today we're going to talk about emergency preparedness, and it's kind of a wake-up call for anyone who runs their own business. Hi, Carrie. I'm so excited that you're here today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, Thank you so much for this opportunity, Katie. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, you know, it's so hard sometimes to make a living doing our art. So I appreciate any organization that's in support of that. Well, and we were we're created by artists for artists. So I mean, we're we're here because of you. So thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I grew up in the craft industry, and it was a very familiar experience to pass the hat for someone who had had a recent illness or other kind of tragedy where they weren't able to maintain their business day to day. So um, it sounds like surf was actually created on that same principle, just making it more formal. That is exactly our beginning. Just like you said, that mutual aid past the hat, I sort of feel like we were founded through almost like an analog Kickstarter sort of ethic, um, where a number of craft artists noticed that whenever they were at shows, they were doing exactly that, passing the hat for a peer who had had a fire or a flood or an illness and you know formalize that into a grant making organization and we are um in our 35th year now that's amazing i just love the idea of coming together to help each other and so what does it look like um to create an organization out of that analog kind of experience so um i will say that the early days were you know well before my time at Surf Plus. Um, so I, I won't speak exactly to that, but um, I can speak to what it what it looks like now in terms of how it functions, which is that you know we're not a membership-based organization. You don't have to have been paying your dues to benefit from the emergency relief fund. Um, so the way the fund works is it's a $3,000 grant to support artists who work in craft disciplines who've had a career-threatening emergency. And the, the criteria are pretty much that simple. Um, and we serve artists all across the United States and territories. How many grants would you say are given out each year? Is it based on what's available in the fund or what people are asking for? So in Surf Plus's history, there's only been one year that I know of where the fund ran dry. And that also speaks to how many we give in a year. A lot of that can depend on um, whether or not it's a really heavy natural disaster year. Um, you know, all it takes is um, a you know, really devastating earthquake or hurricane in an area that has a lot of artists working in craft disciplines to see the number of applications jump up wildly from the previous year that was maybe quieter um, and there weren't as many natural disasters. Um, and while we do serve emergencies outside of that, those are the ones where we might see a lot of applications all in one year. So say um, in 2017, when there were hurricanes, you see um, Harvey, Irma, Jose, and Maria, all within that one fall. That was our biggest year. And that was the year where 
the fund did temporarily get shut down so that we could raise more money. And that was, you know, I think around 150 emergency relief beneficiaries that year. A quiet year might be more like 50. It really can depend wow. on what Mother Nature does that year. Makes it hard to plan. Uh, we're we're very lucky in that the organization, A, has really generous donors. Um, and that year when we had to shut down, we had some donors who rallied together to re- help you know, contribute some significant funds so that we could resume the emergency relief program. And then we also just try to be very good stewards of those donors' contributions so that we don't have to be in the position to shut down the fund. Yeah, you're kind of always ready, it sounds like. It'd be hypocritical if we weren't. <laughs> Almost always ready. <laughs> right. Right. Um, when people are looking to receive funds, what is that process like? So we have a really simple inquiry form on our website. There's a, a very clear get help link at the top of our homepage that you don't have to sift you know, through to get to where you need to be. Um, and that initial inquiry is just trying to learn a little bit more about your emergency and your career as an artist with the, the eye towards, you know, because we do specifically work in craft disciplines, if someone comes to us and say they're a musician, we want, don't want them taking the time to fill out a whole application for something that they're not eligible for. We don't want to waste people's time. Um, and that's why we start with an inquiry and you don't go straight to the application. That way, if you aren't eligible, we can help direct you towards resources that might be more in line with your career and your artistic practice. So that's the first step um, is just submitting that initial inquiry form. And then if you are an artist working in craft disciplines who's had a recent emergency, then um, a member of our staff will direct you to our application. That's amazing, really. I could, I just, I think this is such a wonderful program. And it seems like right now, um, I know you have a new program for COVID-19 relief. Mm-hmm. It's becoming even more widespread that people might require assistance. Yeah, so the the standing emergency relief fund that we've had since our inception is really focused around you know natural disasters and fires and floods and illnesses and injuries and theft, but it's never been the type of fund that's had the capacity to take on this economic impact that we're seeing with COVID nineteen. That's the emergency now, and so um, you know, in response to that, we launched a separate fund dedicated to COVID-19 support with the first cycle. Um, it opened in July and that's a $1,000 one-time grant that's expressly focused on addressing financial need due to COVID um, and whether that's need around housing or food or medical support. Um, and so that's, that's very different from, you know, I talked about a natural disaster year uh, being a year where we might see up to 150 and that's large for us. Um, we're doing two cycles of this grant with the aim of providing 150 grants per cycle. Um, so just in those two cycles running between July and September, that's um, we're aiming towards distributing 300 grants through that COVID-19 dedicated fund. Wow. How do you see that kind of building on what happened or was supposed to happen with the CARES Act? So I see this as evidence that So the CARES Act was intended to meet the needs of the self-employed and independent contractors, which artists often are. It didn't play out that way. Um, And in particular, I'm thinking specifically around unemployment. So when the CARES Act passed, one of the components 
that was new and really hopeful for artists is that it did make unemployment available to uh, the self-employed and independent contractors. It's usually not. Um, and so it was the pandemic unemployment assistance was you know, the state's base unemployment plus this weekly add-on of $600 a week. The challenge with unemployment and the way that it played out is it it wasn't administered centrally. It was administered through each individual state. And as you can imagine, each state handles unemployment differently. And so each state was figuring out how they would work this system where now they are taking applicants who are self-employed. Some states were able to make that shift somewhat quickly and get online fast and start getting people approved. I think I heard from artists in California that California got online pretty quickly with that. There were other states where the system was just very kludgy and opaque the whole time. Um, and I'm not convinced that every state fully got online with that. And that bears out in the application pool that we saw. If this had truly worked and artists were able to receive this pandemic unemployment assistance with that $600 a week add-on, I don't think we'd be seeing the volume of dire financial need that we have in the response to our COVID-19 grant. Right. I mean, $1,000 can be, can be the difference between being over the brink, you know, with housing, medical, food, like you said, it can make a really big difference. And, you know, to, it's a shame that that CARES money didn't maybe play out the way that it was meant to. It's And right now, as of this recording, those things are being reevaluated for the next round, hopefully. They um, are. And they they look very different depending on which version you're looking at. The, the House passed a bill where the current system with the $600 a week add-on would be extended through January 31st, 2021. The Senate is looking at a formula where that $600 would be reduced $200 through the end of September. And then they'd want the states to come up with this uh, complicated formula where the $200 gets dropped and instead people's benefit is the equivalent of 70% of their regular income. But all of this is sort of moot if artists are having a hard time accessing this in the first place. And then there's also the complication where Artists don't have, you know, the standard like employer issued income that they can report. You know, they're right. it's it's different. It's more complicated, and the unemployment it's officers so are complicated not recognizing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it can be really complicated. Well, um, I'd love to hear some advice or tips for how to navigate these waters. You know, how to decide what you're going to do, and then what what are some best practices for getting started? Yeah. So around the the federal relief, um, you know, even though that $600 week sunsetted at the end of last week, if you're still trying to access unemployment, there are a couple tips. Um, one is just being really persistent. Um, you know, even though it's months out, unemployment offices are still you know, um, overloaded and getting through can be really challenging. I heard from someone that Calling, starting to call the office, you know, ten minutes before the office opens is how they've had the best results. Because often someone's there a little bit early, and they 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 can get in you know before like the queue gets too backed up. The other really helpful tip, if you're having trouble, is contact your local state representatives for your district. 
they're the people that can often act as the intermediary between an applicant and the office. Um, and I've, I've talked to some people who are having trouble with their benefits, someone's benefit, um, an artist in New Orleans just suddenly stopped coming. She had been able to access it um, and then she couldn't get an answer why, but it helped her con- figure out who her local reps were. And they did act on her behalf and her benefit was up and running again. So that's, it's true. It's Great. really helpful. Like talk, you know, if you're having difficulty, talk to your local um, state legislative reps, they, they can serve as your intermediary. Yeah. You know, they really are working for us, supposed to be working for us. And I think sometimes it's easy to think you might be bothering them or something, but it's a big part of their job. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, they're, they're getting paid to serve their constituency and you're their constituency. Right. Yeah. Well, what would you recommend for people who are looking to kind of um, also get their paperwork together? Like you said, it can be challenging. Is there anything in particular besides those payments, figuring out what you got paid this year that you're going to report and that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, this is where uh, a principle we kind of talk about, you know, in our, our, our other side of our work, which can be, emer- which is emergency preparedness, it's having strong documentation of your career. Um, so having the ability to show, you know, what your sales were, um, you know, the gross and net, and just having that kind of backup paper trail to how you've conducted your artistic practice. Because unfortunately, it's not the kind of thing where you can just kind of describe it and that's sufficient. It's having, you know, the the financial kind of paperwork behind you to be able to submit and show, you know, what your income has been. Um, you know, it'd, it'd be great if you could just offer this as a narrative. Um, I think a lot of us hate the, the you know, numbers and boxes portions of what we do. Right. But, but unfortunately, you know, that's, this is where it comes in handy. And so just in, in principle, in general, having you know, solid documentation around your artistic practice is where you know, you're going to be a step ahead in trying to navigate these waters. Yeah. And finding some kind of relief when you need it. And like you said, even on the emergency side, if you're just prepared with the paperwork that you need, then it's going to make that process so much easier. Yeah. And it goes beyond, you know, accessing things like unemployment. Um, You know, if you're applying for grants, being able to show your work, being able to show how you've conducted your career. um, There are just so many instances where having, you know, the documentation behind it serves you, you know, if there's been a flood and you need to make an insurance claim, you know, having an inventory that actually represents what you lost that you can point to, you're that much further ahead in the process. Yeah, I hate to say that's all the boring stuff that you have to do in the background, but, you know, it kind of, the, the artist wants to make art, but making a business out of it really means having that stuff all in a line, either by hiring someone to help or begging a sibling to help or whatever the case may be. Well, exactly. And that's, it's funny you say that that's, that's spot on. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be all you, we all have our, our be all you, we all have our strengths and, you know, the, the facets of what we do that, you know, we really connect with. If there's a component that's not your strength, find someone who, you know, who loves numbers. We all have that person in our life who inexplicably loves the numbers parts of things and have them support you. And maybe you can support them in a more creative area of their life where they're just, that's not their thing. Mutual yeah. aid. <laughs> Make jewelry for every holiday. Yeah. <laughs> that's how it goes over exactly. here. Mm-hmm. Well, um, 
You know, I know that you work with a lot of different artists and that you probably have heard a lot of great stories about people who had a um, an emergency experience that actually kind of turned into something really powerful for their art and for their business. Do you have anyone in mind that you could share with us their story? Yeah, um, a couple people. There's um, an artist named um, Diana Davila who uh, is a ceramic artist and she does some work in jewelry as well. And she's in Puerto Rico. She was with, without, I think, water for 45 days and electricity for 90 after Hurricane oh, I Maria. Imagine. I know. And so that's hard just on a human level. But then, you know, it hit our artistic practice too, where you can't fire work if you can't like in a kiln. Um, so, you know, she couldn't even turn to her artwork as a way to kind of you know, keep something moving um, after after an emergency like that. But she, you know, instead of focusing on that piece, she talked a lot about what she learned about the resilience of the human spirit um, and sort of the community component that she saw after those hurricanes. Um, and I think that's something that we hear a lot from artists after an emergency, um, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, a lot of people just spoke about that community component um, and people coming together. And you know, I have this, you know, you need that, so let me get it to you. And that that nature can, in the human spirit to offer what you can. I mean, you're seeing that now in COVID, where there are people who can't get to shows, can't sell their work, but, you know, they're making masks and giving them to their friends and, you know, the people who need them or they're making masks for um, first responders, you know, they're, they're losing their income. They've lost the ability to conduct their career in the way that they normally would, but they're still thinking about how they can serve their community. And that's such a common theme after emergencies with artists. There's this, you know, not, not me, but what about everyone else and what can I do and how can I help support my community in recovering? Um, and artists just have this tremendous capacity to take this collective experience and then distill it and then share it back out in a way that helps everyone process what they all just went through together. So true. I think it also speaks to the fact that it adds even more meaning to the work that you do when you're turning around and giving back, like you say, you know, I think, um, using your skill, using our artistic skills and creativity, it's really, I think, powerful anyway, you know, but then you add this other element of service and it becomes a whole other animal. I noticed on the website that you have some pins for sale that are a part of a fundraising project from Thomas Mann and Boris Bally and some other very well-known metal, metal smiths. And how did that come together? Oh yeah, I I love that that side of um, surpluses fundraising. It's it's existed in a couple ways um, throughout the years. You know, Thomas Mann is an artist that um, folks at Surplus met after Hurricane Katrina. He's down in New Orleans, um, and you know he had known about Surf for a while. And um, you know, there's this great great picture of him with you know a uh, a dead refrigerator that was on a front lawn and he had duct taped um, the phrase like money for surf plus on it and was fundraising <laughs> for surf after Katrina in oh New Orleans. Um, <laughs> and you know, he's just been you know friends with folks at the organization ever since. And so, you know, we work with uh, his studio to purchase a batch of 
uh, these really wonderful um, hand-shaped pins that have Surf Plus stamped on them and all this really fine kind of surface design. Um, there are you know, brass ones and nickel ones. And you know, so we work with his studio to you know, uh, purchase a bat and then sell those as a fundraiser through our website. And then for a number of years, we, um, we were doing a fundraiser where we would work with an artist to create a charm for that year um, and be stamped with, with the year on it. And you know, uh, so one year it was Boris Valley who made a hammer-shaped charm, which I just love. I love it too. Isn't it great? Um, I do. I saw it. It's so cute. <laughs> and we still have a couple of them, but there aren't many. So um, if you're interested, I, I will encourage you to, to act fast. Um, and so, yeah, that, that fundraiser went on for, I think, six or seven years where every year there was a Surf Plus charm. And so there, you know, there are a number of these amazing, generous artists who want to work with us to, to create a piece that, you know, they, they're able to kind of produce in quantity that we can then you know, sell as a, a fundraising item through our, through our website. Yeah. Well, and it brings it back around to, you know, they're giving back. You're supporting them by purchasing it, but I'm sure they're also giving you a break being a great organization. And so it's a feel good all the way around. Yeah. And I mean, we're incredibly thankful for the the generosity, but we, yeah, we, it is still a purchase from them and we, because as we all know, you have to pay artists for their work. I mean, we, I know so many artists who've said like, do you know how many nonprofits just think, you know, like, oh, can you just donate a piece of work? Can you just donate a piece of work? Like, well, would you ask someone to like donate an hour of, you know, website design or an hour of, you know, I don't know, your know, word Electrical work. Exactly. <laughs> like, you just, you wouldn't do that. You know, would you donate an hour of being a lawyer or a doctor? Like you don't do that in other professions. And it's, it's flabbergasting to me that people still just think like, no, no, artists can just donate a piece of work. That's fine. I'll just ask them to do that. That's fine. It's, no, pay artists for their work because it's work. Well, it is certainly. And I appreciate the fact that surf puts their money where their mouth is, you know, it's, um, it makes a lot of sense that you are telling artists it, through your education and outreach that they need to charge for their work. And so you're willing to pay for it too. So that's pretty amazing and cool. Are there any other tips that you think that you want to share with our listeners about just, I don't know, anything in regarding their preparedness or things that they might not anticipate that we should think about, especially in light of the pandemic and just kind of how life is right now? Yeah, I mean, it's challenging with the the pandemic because you know, most emergencies have sort of an understandable scope to them. I think with a hurricane, you kind of you know when it's coming, you know what you need to do while it's happening, you know, namely evacuate if you can or you know how to sort of store up your structure if you're sheltering in place. And then you you have sort of an understanding even you know in a, a large scale emergency kind of of the there's like there's a there's a an arc to it and might be a very long arc and I'm not saying that in any way to diminish the impact of it, but there's an arc to it, but what's challenging right now with COVID is this is entirely unknown. Like we, we don't know what things are going to look like in, you know, two months, four months, six months, a year. Um, so it's, you know, I think we're all doing the, the work of kind of learning what preparedness for something like this looks like. Um, and on the fly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so it's, it still feels 
difficult to talk about you know preparedness for this type of emergency because we're still understanding like what this type of emergency is we're still living it right um, but i i can talk about emergency preparedness a little more generally because that's a you know not new but new were part of surf plus's work you know, we st- we were founded with that emergency relief fund but in the past 15 years you know ever since hurricane katrina we've been aware that there's a lot of work that we could do from what we've learned working with artists after emergencies to help artists on the emergency preparedness side so that if something does happen, it impacts them as little as possible. And that's been really evolving over the past 15 years um, and taking on a couple of different forms. You know, the One of the initial uh, kind of focuses of that was um, our studio protector, which started out as a, a physical object with a companion website. And um, it was a it was a great device that had, you know, kind of a wheel on the front that you would spin where it kind of ran through different components of, you know, what emergency preparedness looked like when there was no emergency on the horizon. Things like, you know, having documentation in place, like we talked about, you know, um, because after an emergency, like I said, if you're submitting an insurance claim, you know, being able to show inventory and loss, just you're that much farther ahead of the game. Um, and, you know, thinking about what type of risk um, you should be trying to pre- prepare for based maybe on your geography. Do you live in a wildfire prone area or earthquake or hurricane, et cetera? Or if there are certain risks um, that need to be more at the forefront of your mind, maybe based on your practice, you know, is fire um, a component of how you create your work? Do you have risks around your kilns, you know, making sure that. You, know, you have the proper like electrical setup for them, or you know, are you in a shared studio space where maybe everything that you're doing, um, you know, you're doing everything really safely, but there's someone in a studio near you that might be putting something that you're doing at risk. So really thinking through um, the kind of the what ifs around emergency and making you know provisions when nothing's on the nothing, horizon. Yeah, exactly. Nothing's you know kind of staring at you. Um, yeah. That makes sense with the shared studio. I hadn't really, I mean, I have considered it in different parts of my life, but right now in this conversation, I wasn't thinking about the day-to-day practicality of safety and preparedness in the studio. You know, just looking at your go bag, whatever it is you need. Well, exactly. Because there's, you know, there's the, when nothing's on the horizon, but then there's the, you know, something's coming. And so if you had to evacuate your studio really quickly, and some people did face this with COVID where suddenly they needed to stay at home and they had a studio that was external and they weren't able to access it for a while. Right. You know, is what's vital that you need that's in your studio that you could take with you? Like, realistically, you wouldn't be able to, you know, evacuate, you know, a glass kiln or a ceramic kiln, but what are... Any like vital documents that only exist in hard copy there, which, oh, please back things up. Like, please don't let that be the case. <laughs> um, but, you know, are there are there tools that are portable and incredibly important to your practice that you'd want to have accessible to evacuate quickly? Um, yeah, know, so that makes sense. Or a plan B for how to continue working if you aren't able to get into your studio or where you typically work. Yeah. And with the understanding that, you know, it might be a situation where you're not going to be able to recreate what you could do in the studio, but what could you do? What would be accessible and what can you facilitate making accessible? 
through you know that you know go bag for your practice because we we think about go bags for our our personal lives you know medications you know if we're taking pets with us having extra pet food etc but what's the go bag for your artistic practice and what would keep you rolling you mm-hmm. know even if just so you don't have to just stop altogether right if it's yeah. possible exactly what could you do and you know thinking beyond that too you know just not just your artistic practice in terms of making the work, but how you conduct it. You know, if you didn't have access to your studio or your usual setup, do you have the means to communicate with the people who are vital to your practice? You know, the, your customers, the galleries you work with, the show producers you work with, um, suppliers, or you know, if there's anyone else who's involved in the making of your work. Um, if you suddenly didn't have access to your studio. Does that all exist somewhere else where you have it and you kind of consolidated and condensed and you wouldn't feel like you're kind of scattered trying to figure out how to connect to everyone you need to connect to? Yeah, that's a great idea. Sort of a short list of contacts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it. I mean, I imagine it would be a very stressful time trying to just establish your business outside of your workshop or wherever you typically work. And so, yeah, having your contacts right at hand, then you don't have to spend, you know, a number of days building that list back. Yeah. And you know, there's the stress of that, which if that's on top of already being stressed about your primary needs around, you know, food and shelter or just anything else that could come with a, a major emergency, the less stressed you have to be about that side of your life, the artistic practice side of your life, the, the more you could have that in place while you already have kind of some heavy concerns that really need your focus. Just you, We only have so much brain space available and emergencies really try yeah. that. Um, right. I was just going to say our cups are already pretty full. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And if, you're, you know, if your primary focus needs to be on you know, making sure that you're okay, keeping all that peripheral stuff to you know, the peripheral stuff to you know your actual existence kind of manageable and not a source of additional stress it just it helps you so much in, in taking care of yourself after something really traumatic happens that makes a lot of sense I think it's a really good advice and I don't think it would actually take that long I feel like it's one of those chores that I would put off thinking it's going to take forever and then once I get into it it's really not that bad yeah, and we all have those moments where as much as we're engaged in like the thing that we love and we're passionate about, you know, whether it's, you know, making work or, you know, the for me, you know, diving into some of the nerdier sides around emergency preparedness for us, <laughs> we all have that moment where we're like, we just we don't want to do it. And that's the time we're like, okay, I'll take on checking out, you know, my emergency contacts or I'll take a look at that inventory list I haven't, you know, for a while to make sure that my inventory of my tools is up to date. You know, that moment where like, I'm kind of flagging on the prime thing I should be doing. That's when you should be like, okay, time to maybe take a little preparedness break. What can I chip away at in this moment? Yeah, that's an excellent idea. How about a checklist? Does this exist? So we, uh, we have a couple. Uh, <laughs> I thought you might. <laughs> we do. Um, so there's a whole studio protector section of our website. Um, when you go to our site, which is www.surfplus, and that's C-E-R-F-E-L-U-S dot O-R-G, there's a get ready section that includes a link to our studio protector. And in the studio protector, you can find um, information on documentation. There are sample inventory templates that you could download and use um, to, dump, uh, to inventory 
your studio, your artwork, um, et cetera. And then um, also within that link, you can go to our studio safety guide, which is also a checklist guide that you can download for free. Um, so if you want to kind of do a walkthrough of your space and your studio with an eye towards safety, we kind of spell out things you can look at around HVAC systems or, you know, the heating and cooling around um, the space itself and who else is in it, how that might impact you, the structure. Um, you know, if your studio is a detached building on your property and you are in an area that's prone to, say, you know, tornadoes or hurricanes, are there kind of low hanging tree branches over your building that you, know, you might want to have addressed at some point? Because if there was a high wind event, those could be uh, a, a danger to your your studio space. So things like that, that you can kind of start you know, walking around thinking like a building inspector, you know, um, and and start looking for areas where there might be things that you could change to just make you that much safer in your practice. Well, I think it can be scary to face these kinds of questions because it makes it a little too real. But as we're all experiencing right now, it already is real. So I think it makes sense to go ahead and take a look. Yeah. Like and a building inspector, like you said, you know, look around. Exactly. And I mean, not to be grim, but would you rather have it be real on this side where it hasn't happened? Or would you rather have it be real on the side where it has? And it's just that much harder to recover. Um, it's, you know, if there is something you can do now, you know, if that tree branch does like fall in your studio, like um, it's harder to recover from that than address that issue beforehand. Definitely. And I would just like to remind our listeners that if you are um, lucky right now and things are going well and you can afford to kick down some cash for other artists who are in need, then it's easy to do that at your website. Surfplus.org. Surfplus.org. And um, so that that header at the top of the page, it has, you know, get ready um, and get relief. And that's where you can find the information about the emergency relief fund, both the standing one and the COVID. The Get Connected if you want to sign up to get our monthly e-communications and learn more about some of our work. And then there also is a donate button right next to that. Great. Well, Carrie, this has been so informative. Thank you so much for sharing all of this information and for doing the good work that you're doing. And I'm not going to let you get away without um, asking you my standard question for every guest, which is, do you have a favorite piece of jewelry or gemstone? It's like you're asking me to choose like my favorite pet or, you know, right. <laughs> or like who of my best friends I love the most. Like, I, don't, I can't pick. Um, so um, it's a cruel question, but I'll play. Uh, um, it's it's in for posterity now. So, you know, no pressure or anything. Oh, gosh, none. None at all. Um, so I... I'll cheat a little bit, but um, I will say that through my work at Surf Plus, I have the luck to be able periodically in pre-COVID world, go to shows and meet artists and see amazing work. Um, and I have some pieces that I find that I'm just going back to and wearing all the time. Right now, I'm wearing a pair of earrings made by Lisa Crowder. Um, they're these hoops that are cut out of um, silver and they're oxidized. And they're sort of kind of wavy circles. They're not just, you know, those kind of sterile, completely clean circles. And they just, they have a lot of personality. And I'm going to single those up because I wear them like multiple times a week. You know? Oh, that's how you know. That's how you know they're good, right? 
Exactly. Like they're my go-to, like, oh, what should I wear? I, you know, I could wear another pair of rings. Like, no, I love those. I, they just, they go with everything and I love them and they're special and I love them. Aww. And did I mention that I love them? <laughs> <laughs> A lot of love going on there. Well, thank you so much. I uh, appreciate your time today. And if anyone has questions or anything, they can contact through your website. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, there's a contact us link in that get connected and, um, we're very easy to reach and our staff um, contact info is on the about us page. We're very, very easy to reach even during this COVID land where we're not physically in our office. Okay. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for doing the work that you do. Oh, thank you for this opportunity to share it. Thanks for listening. To see pictures, please check out our show notes, interweave.com slash jewelry dash artist dash podcast. Jewelry Artist is hosted and produced by me, Katie Hacker. We had help from Tamara Hahnemann and Merle White, a special thanks to the team at Lapidary Journal Jewelry Artist Magazine. Jewelry Artist is an interweave podcast and produced by Golden Peak Media. Our podcast producer is Matthew Talisfor. Tammy Jones is our web editor and Jesse Rodriguez does our marketing. Our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer.